I'm going to start by telling you something about um, God that you may not know, which is probably what you're hoping to hear, stuff about God, like in general. But I'm going to tell you, here's the thing. So last night, I don't know what time it was, Sarah. I'm going to guess probably 11 p.m. or something. I texted Sarah and was just kind of like, I haven't played guitar in a long time at Revolution. I've been kind of missing it. Can I get in one of these weeks coming up? And she was like, oh, yeah, we'll work you in after Easter. And then this morning, at like 7, she was like, oh, Pat canceled. Can you fill in? And I was like... See, that's the thing. Don't, don't tempt. Don't tempt anybody. It'll work out. Um, anyways, it's been fun. I'm glad to get to, to do that from time to time. Um, so, back to the script here. Good morning. It's good to be, every, uh, good to be with you today. Thank you. Um, so this week, here's what we're up to. We're continuing in our series on the Gospel of Luke that's called Fulfilled. And the goal of this series... Um, if, you, if you're new to us this morning or if you're, it's the first time you've been in a few weeks, the goal of this series is to dig into the why, um, specifically the why about why we have the stories of Jesus' life at all. Um, and here's, what, here's what I mean, because I think it can feel obvious to us because we've always had them. But what we know is that for the first 30 or 40 years of the Christian faith's existence in the first century, the main testimony that we have about Jesus has to do with who he is and with what he is. We get this from from the letters that we have uh, being shared between the first Christians and the first churches. And what we see in those letters is that the first Christians were confident in Jesus's identity as the actual son of God. And they believed that he came to earth in order to fulfill God's ancient promise to the Israelites to bring a savior into the world. And that this savior, they argued, these first Christians argued, that this savior by dying in this strange way, in this way that was this shocking echo of Jewish sacrifices from millennia ago, and then by rising from the dead three days later, that this savior creates this real path, this actual path for human beings to reconnect with God and to participate in God's coming kingdom. And so the big idea that they have is that through Jesus, everybody, all of us, can find forgiveness from our sins, whether we're Jews, whether we're Gentiles, and we can receive this living promise of eternal life. And that's what we know about those first decades of the church's existence. That's their testimony. That's the good news that they preach and spread throughout the world. But here's something else that we know that as that first generation of direct witnesses to Jesus's life and his ministry began to die later in the first century, several Christians, we don't know how many, set out to tell the story of Jesus's life too, to add his life story into that narrative about who he is and what he's done. And this didn't replace their commitment to preaching about his death and resurrection. They still do that. And when you read the records we have, when you read the gospel accounts, Jesus' death and resurrection still takes up the big bulk of the material there. But there was something about Jesus' way of actually being in the world that those first Christians were afraid of losing if those eyewitnesses to it passed away and they hadn't written it down. So there's something about Jesus' life that the first Christians believed would be instructive and helpful for the people that came after them. And that, of course, includes us all these years later. And so as we study one of these life accounts of Jesus, one of these gospels, these are our big questions in this series. 
what does Jesus's way of living teach me about how to live my own life? Where can I see myself in these stories? Why would anybody tell me these stories? And how can I deeply listen to the challenges that Jesus is presenting to people? How can I find encouragement and the love and the hope that he's walking around spreading? Now, I'm starting with this kind of recap and reminder today for two reasons. One, I do this all the time. It's just, I love recaps. I did it when I was an English teacher. I do it now. I love them. They're my favorite things. The second reason I'm starting with it today is because this week's text, which is Luke 5, I think is a particularly easy one in which we can lose our way. And the reason is because it's a chapter where if you're already a Christian, it can get real easy as you read it to slip into being a spectator, which is to say, to kind of remove yourself from the contest that this chapter describes and to just kind of cheer for your side. This March Madness weekend by coincidence. So I imagine you know a lot about that. This morning, what we need to do is we need to figure out how to stay in the middle of, of the conflict, to stay in the middle of the fight, because these stories, as we just recapped there, are meant to teach us something, and we need to want to actually be taught. So what's going on in Luke 5? Luke 5 covers the first days of Jesus' ministry and includes five stories, which is super easy to remember. I wish all the chapters were like that, except I guess if you had like Luke 20, it'd be long. But anyway, that is five stories. Here they are. Number one, Jesus calls Peter and other fishermen to be his disciples. Story two, Jesus heals a man with leprosy and these new characters show up, Pharisees, the legal um, and religious leaders of, their, of the time. And so Jesus heals a man with leprosy and the Pharisees are there and they just watch. And then in Luke 3, or not Luke 3, the third story here is that Jesus forgives the sins of a paralytic man. And then after he forgives his sins, he heals his body. And when that happens, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of heresy. And then in the fourth story, Jesus calls a man named Levi, who's a tax collector. And then he goes to Levi's house and dines with him and his other riffraff. And when that happens, the Pharisees complain about it. And then in the fifth story, Pharisees just openly criticize Jesus's disciples. And Jesus tells the Pharisees this, this story that we call the parable of the wineskins. Those are our five stories here. Calls Peter, heals a leper, forgives the sins of a paralytic, calls a tax collector and eats with them, and then is criticized and replies with the parable of the, of the wineskins. Now, here's the issue. The temptation to spectate here is the result of what seems like a growing conflict in these stories that frankly doesn't include most of us who already consider ourselves Jesus followers. Instead, the conflict is between these Jewish religious leaders, right, and then these kind of common sinners that Jesus keeps recruiting. And I can say with some degree of certainty, although there are some new faces here this morning, but I can say with some degree of certainty that none of us are literal Pharisees here this morning, and so it's going to be hard to relate. And although most of us, I think, might own up to being common sinners, I would say the majority of us are also not new to the faith and the way that the people in these stories are. And so I think we tend to encounter stories like these, like sports fans, where picking a team is easy and our team is Jesus and his merry band of misfits. We like those guys, right? And the other team is like the mean and nasty and condescending Pharisees. 
And when we see things in this particular way, the lessons can seem pretty obvious from a text like this. In fact, Luke 5 is helpful because Jesus even sums what seems like the lesson up in verse 32. He says, he answers the Pharisees, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's pretty direct, right? Like quite easy to, to parse. Hey, Pharisees, right? Jesus isn't talking to you. That's kind of the message. He's here for these people who actually need him. And that's a clear point for us to hear. But of course, it's not the whole story. And we're missing out, I think, if we stop there. Because the truth is, and we can miss this, the truth is that the Pharisees do need him. Don't they? Jesus is on both teams. So if our goal is to read all of this and to learn how to follow him, then we need to try and understand the hope that he offers, not just to the team we like, but to both of the teams in the passage. So we'll start easy though. We'll start with like team riffraff and the hope that Jesus extends for them. And that hope does come through criticism of team Pharisees. And here's what I think we're gonna find. The problem with the Pharisees is that like all legalistically moral people, like all legalistically moral people, they really get sinners wrong. Let's look at ourselves in this mirror if we can. I want you to think of the actual last time that you saw somebody breaking a law. Doesn't have to be a big cool law or something. It's any old law, right? Maybe it was seeing like underage kids drinking in a park. Do kids do that, I think, still? They must, right? That's what kids do. Anyways, maybe you saw that happening or maybe you saw somebody steal something or maybe you saw like a fight outside a bar. I have questions for you. If that was the last thing you saw, like what, how did that happen? Where were you? What was up? My guess though is that most of you, if you're thinking along with me, you're thinking about something traffic related, right? Oh man, I don't think I've ever gotten that many like nods to anything I've ever said. <laughs> Yes, that's true for me too. Specifically, I'm thinking of something that is like a really niche and like probably like uninteresting problem to you, but one that like infuriates me personally on a near daily basis. And it is this, Meredith, I'm so glad you're here because you're with me on this, all right? It is people driving south from Spa Circle on Spa Road during school drop-off hours and trying to turn left into Bates Middle School, right? There are like four of you that get it, but honestly, there is so clearly a sign that says you cannot do this, right? You can't. And when you do, what happens inevitably is the traffic backs up. It's not far to spot circle from there. And so the traffic backs up and then the whole circle blocks up and then nobody can get anywhere and I can't get home, which is the more particular problem for me. <laughs> and I am like routinely enraged. I don't know what, like I can't put into words how angry it makes me when I see that turn signal go on when people do that. <laughs> And I make, as I imagine you might, I make some like seriously problematic assumptions about the people who do this. I assume, and I mean it, they're no good. They're not good people. That they are selfish people. They're bad people. That they are likely stupid people. And that I hope, I hope that they get caught. Like I hope it so much that they get caught and punished. Now, 
Now let's check in with the Pharisees, right? In verse 33, we see this. The Pharisees said to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Now the question is, do you see yourself in this mirror, right? The Pharisees criticize Jesus and they criticize his disciples because Jesus' disciples don't act like their disciples do. I like how they throw that in. Like, ours, ours are good. What's y'all, what are y'all up to? Now, of course, the implication of the story is that Jesus isn't holy in the way that he is saying that he's holy. And the reason he's not holy is because he doesn't care about his followers' holiness when it comes to fasting. Because he's not doing anything to help them with their ignorance. Like, it's super condescending, but the Pharisees are, are assuming here that, like, they just don't know any better. You're their teacher. You should teach them. But this is what the Pharisees get wrong about Jesus' followers and what I get wrong, frankly, about people making that left turn. And it's this. Sinners aren't stupid. Sinners aren't stupid. Let's go back and like look at some of those ruffians, right, in this chapter that Jesus keeps talking to. We can start way back at the beginning with Simon, who's going to become Peter down the line. Luke 5, 1 through 8 says this. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Simon is fully aware of his brokenness. And Jesus doesn't say a darn word to him about it. Not one. And we should wonder, I think, if we're reading the story to see what it can teach us, we should wonder why. Why not? Why doesn't he say anything? And then next, there's this man, right? In verse 12, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This leper like, knows that he's untouchable by law. The story is about the boldness of Jesus' mercy it's not a story about enlightening an unclean man about his uncleanliness. In story number three in verses 18 through 20, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, there are a lot of sermons on this passage, but here's what I'm going to note. In this passage, we have actual vandals. Vandals. 
These men are so desperate to help their friend that they tear up the roof of a stranger's house in the first century Near East. You want to talk about turning left against a no-turn arrow. (laughs) Can you imagine how the people who had waited patiently to get into that house to hear Jesus felt about what was going on? But Jesus doesn't condemn their behavior. He doesn't say a word about it. Instead, what he does is he forgives their sin. These people know that they have done something bad. They have done something wrong. But they are so desperate for help. And that desperation is what's led them here. And Jesus sees not their sin, but their desperation. And he meets them where they are. And when Jesus calls Levi in the next story, you know how this is going to go. Our man is actually sitting at a tax booth mid-cheating people, like in process. And you get the point, I think, that condemning people first is just not Jesus's way. It's just not. And so what are the Pharisees and what are we getting wrong? I think it's this, the assumption that people behaving badly don't realize they're behaving badly. That what people most need is to be taught how to be good. That their bad behavior then is the result of some kind of immaturity or ignorance on their part. But in my experience, that's just not how people are. In most cases, I think people are well aware of the mistakes that they're making. And they know their brokenness for the simple reason that they're the ones experiencing that brokenness. The issue is that they just don't know a real way out. And the truth is that people tend to break the rules the way gamblers double down, right? It's just this once. It's because I don't see a choice. If I can get back to even, I'll fly straight. And if you're honest with yourself, isn't that why you make that illegal turn? Now here's the question. Does laying on my horn help the situation? does. So why do churches tend to obsess over people's sins? Why is just about every person in this room heard a sermon about the creeping wickedness of the world? About loving the sinner, but hating the sin? Who are we preaching to? Do you think there's one person left in this whole country who doesn't know what sorts of things the Bible condemns? One. And it makes me wonder when I think about this, is our goal reaching people or is our goal applauding ourselves? John's disciples often fast and pray and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. I think it's when we fixate on other people's behavior that we become the Pharisees in this story. And Jesus' ultimate criticism of the Pharisees is this. Why are you so dead set on getting in my way? Why? Do you prefer the sinful fishermen ostracized and helpless and alone? Is that your, what you want? Or do you actually want to see his repentance? 
Or is what's really going on here that in some way it's actually helpful for you to be able to point at somebody else and say, there goes somebody really wicked. And when you do that, it allows all of your own compromises that you make to just disappear. Your own left turns, right? That you make just because you were in a hurry just this once. It wasn't anything. You don't do it all the time. All that stuff suddenly doesn't look so bad. I think Jesus' way of life challenges us when we see ourselves in the position of the Pharisees. It challenges us to confront our own arrogance and our own cynicism. And he tells us, like he tells them, as plainly as he can, stop getting in my way. Instead, we can let his willingness to get down there, right, to live with broken people, We can let that willingness of God humble us and blow the limits off the doors that we put on God's mercy and God's love. And I think that is the hope for the riffraff that will get out of Jesus's way. Now, let me get very direct with everybody this morning, which is the thing I'm I'm not always great at. At this church, I'll be as direct as I can. At this church, we are going to delight in radical inclusion. No amount of sin makes anybody unwelcome here. No degree of difference, whether you personally understand it or accept it or not, is going to be permitted to get in the way of a person spending time with Jesus, period. And the reason is because this whole ballgame is feeling and deeply experiencing God's grace towards us. And it doesn't matter who we are or what we've done or even what we're still doing right now. If we remember Levi, the tax collector, Jesus comes to us where we are and it all starts with his love, not with his judgment. Now that's the first part where Jesus challenges our judgmentalism so that hope can flow to people who are far from God. And I imagine, I said this was all going to be challenging, but I imagine most of you are like, that wasn't challenging at all. That was great. I love all that stuff. That's why I'm here. Good. But we're not done. There's more sermon. <laughs> if only. Sorry about that. Because the thing is, we need to be just as cautious about lining ourselves up as spectators cheering on Team Jesus in the riffraff as we would be lining up to cheer on Team Pharisees. Because, like I said at the beginning, Jesus isn't here for one team or the other. He's here for them both. And the truth is that we get the Pharisees wrong too. And there's hope for them. So let's talk about that. Now, how? What's Jesus going to say on their behalf? And the answer in the passage is that particularly strange parable that comes at the end of the chapter. Now, we know it as the parable of the wineskins, and it goes like this. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For they say the old is better. Now, I highlighted that last line because everybody cuts it out all the time because it's an absolute monkey wrench into what seems like a pretty straightforward parable. 
And you know me enough to know, like, monkey wrenches are my whole thing. Like, I love it. Now, the first part, like I said here, can feel really encouraging for us, especially if we think of ourselves as non-judgmental and inclusive Christians, which I think most of the people in this room do. And it can feel encouraging because Jesus is saying that this new wine, right, we're getting the metaphor, he's this new wine, that he's here to pour out this new wine and that it's meant for these new wineskins. And we can take that, this like new wine for new wineskins, as an echo of what he said earlier about coming into the world, not for the healthy, but for the sick. And we accept, as we said last week, that Jesus' mission, right, is to connect Israel to other people, not people who are not traditionally part of Israel, right, in order to do the thing that Israel was always supposed to do, which is to become a blessing for all nations. Jesus is here to fulfill that old story. And so we get it. He's the new wine, and he's looking for new folks to receive this new wine. And to continue with the metaphor, right, the issue the Pharisees are currently experiencing is that they are behaving like old wineskins, and they're cracking and they're breaking when they encounter this new thing that Jesus is saying and doing. But if we're tempted to say at this point, take that, Pharisees, like I said earlier, Jesus isn't for you, then again, we're not reflecting the heart of our Savior who's for everybody, and we're also skimping on that last verse. And no one drinking after old, drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now here's the thing, and you know this, but you don't know what to do with it. And I don't really know what to do with it either. So this is going to be an unsatisfying end to the sermon. But here's the thing. Isn't the whole deal with wine that it gets better with age? I don't, I don't drink. Actually, I've just started to. Not crazily or anything, but... <laughs> Thanks. But <laughs> that didn't come out how I wanted. What I mean is this. Not this morning, not to no. What I mean is this. I'm forty I'm forty one and I grew up Southern Baptist, so I never did. I was like straight edge, like all through. But on my fortieth birthday I was like, I'm going to try alcohol. It's going very slowly. It's going okay. I don't know what y'all are all into, actually. I'm still a little confused about it. But anyways, point is this. What I hear is that wine gets better the older it gets. Asking for a friend. Which makes this all weird. It makes this last verse weird. Is the goal new wine? I don't know that it is. And, and when you're thinking about it, it's worth going back to that thing earlier too where Jesus talks about coming here for the sick. Like, is it actually a problem for healthy people to not go to a doctor? There's a couple of double negatives in there, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Like, is this wrong? Is it wrong to be, an old, to be old wine? Is it wrong to not go to the doctor if you don't feel sick? I think... The thing that we get wrong about the Pharisees is we get wrong this idea that their fixation on the old covenant is some kind of a mistake. That the goal of the whole story is for that to be replaced. The truth is, the truth is that what Jesus is upset about with them is that they're not actually being old school enough. Jesus says that if they would actually stay focused on the law, like truly focused on the law and humble towards that law, they'd actually be just fine. 
Because first of all, they would actually be living uprightly, which would be good. And second of all, instead of being threatened by Jesus, they would see that he actually is the old wine too. He is that prophesied Messiah, and he is doing the kinds of things that God has longed for Israel to be doing for all of their neighbors. The problem isn't their adherence to a historic Judaism. Their problem is they become rigid and frail in their certainty about historic Judaism to the extent that they can't see the connection between the old and the new that's happening right in front of their faces. And so if we're going to take a personal challenge from that, Here's what I would suggest. I would suggest we go easy on the idea that Jesus is someone who's only interested in meeting us when we are at our lowest. That's a temptation in churches like ours. We find Jesus when we're in the pit. I'd like to find him all all the time. It's easy to fixate on trusting God when our lives are a mess, on feeling accepted by God when we feel unacceptable to everybody else. But Jesus challenges us to remember that he is also here to fulfill an old story. That God hasn't actually changed between the Old and the New Testaments. We've changed. And the hope for the Pharisees is that by working these miracles in front of them, Jesus is encouraging them to try and stay limber in their faith. He's encouraging us to do that too. And we do that by cheering on the new things that he's doing and looking forward to how a long life lived in close relationship with him will age us, will age us into fine wine in the future. Now, again, to try and be practical for us as a church, what I'm saying is this. Yes, we will be a place where everybody can find God's grace without judgment. Yes, we will also be a place where those of us who are increasingly aging wineskins, which is the most delicate way I've ever found to say that I'm getting old, that those of us who are increasingly aging wineskins will keep looking at the radical love of Jesus to keep our own hearts open and soft. And that process is a more quiet path of genuine discipleship. And we walk it by staying near to Jesus through prayer, through scripture, through faithfulness, through routine generosity, through genuine affection for our brothers and sisters, and through humility and love. And the gut check for us, the gut check for all of us Pharisees, is to look at the new stuff Jesus is doing and interrogate our own hearts about it is our instinct to rejoice in God's surprising mercy and Jesus's passion for connecting with people who who we disagree with or people who we struggle to understand? Is our instinct to cheer that on even if it's making us uncomfortable? Or is our instinct to pass judgment and to complain that everything's changing, that this act of grace after 2,000 years, that this one is actually taking it too far. It's too far. What I want to propose is that we have another choice, and that choice is to be in awe. What if we saw in Jesus the coming to fruition of that old love of God that we 
that we found so long ago. And now here it is bursting forth in new ways in the world. And what if when we saw that, when we saw God's love showing up in places that are surprising and for people that we may not always agree with, what if we got excited about that? How would the whole gospel stories be different if that had been the example that the Pharisees set for us? One where they rejoiced in the long-awaited and the surprising Messiah. The church still has a chance to be different in just that sort of a way. We can cheer for Jesus who is on both teams, the misfit team, the Pharisee team, on all teams. And in that, have a chance to encounter, to follow, and to keep following a surprising and overwhelmingly loving God. And my, I'll close like this. My hope is that that's the choice we'll make. 